Father in heaven, uh, God, thank you so much. Uh, thank you that we uh, can come to you. Uh, Father, thank you that you are universal, uh, that whether it's East Africa, West Africa, South Africa, uh, the beautiful city of Cape Town, Father, San Antonio, wherever we are in the world, you are still God. Father, you remain true. You remain who it is that you are, Father, and you are uh, a loving God, uh, not that love is what you do, but love is who you are. And Father, this morning, as we continue uh, our uh, journey into trying to become people who say it's all about we instead of saying it's all about me, we pray, Lord, that you would speak to each and every one of our hearts, that you would inspire us and encourage us, that you would challenge us where necessary, Father, that you would call out of us what is needed so that, Father, we can be your image-bearing community. Father, I pray that you speak through me, that you add words where perhaps I took words away, you take words away where perhaps I added my own words, and I pray, Holy Spirit, that you come. May we gain deeper information that will lead to a more sincere transformation. In your son's name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. If you have a Bible, please turn with me over to the book of Mark, chapter 3. Uh, I'm going to get there here in a little bit. Um, I do want to start by saying, if you're visiting with us, or perhaps you, you've missed a step or two in our story, uh, I'm going to try and catch you up very briefly. Uh, but this is the shameless plug for, we have all of this on YouTube. So please feel free to jump on YouTube and check them out over there. Uh, the previous two lessons, we discussed uh, very simple concepts. One, that we are created from community, the triune God, three in one, who are in loving community. They created a loving community in us, that we would love them and that we would love one another. We also looked at the idea that in this world of busy, distracted complexity with tech doing its own thing, that we want to be able to choose what is better, to choose what is more simple, to choose presence with God and those that he loves around us. And we look at the idea that, man, all of this is so we can continue to grow to become people of love. Now, I know that often when we hear a sermon, what we perceive is the speaker has it all together. What we think is he's gone through the journey for 12 months or 38 months or whatever you, and he is now perfect in the topic at hand, and that's why he can stand up and share with us. And I wanted to just reiterate, because I'm going to say some very hard things this morning, some things that convicted me as I was preparing. I was like, but I'm, this is, what? Like, this is so challenging. I want to say this is a sermon series not just for me or for us as a community, but I think it's for all of us. I think it's for, from God for us so that we can collectively grow together. And I also wanted to mention, like I mentioned last week, that A Meal with Jesus is this book. It's by a guy named Tim Chester. I, I will put pictures up in, in the next, next week, but it's called A Meal with Jesus by Tim Chester. Uh, is highly recommended. It helped shape a lot of what you'll hear in the teaching, uh, over the, or what you've heard and what you will hear. And then the other book is a book called When the Church Was a Family by Joseph H. Hallerman. And in fact, today, a lot of what we'll speak about today is found in that book, When the Church Was a Family, Joseph H. Hallerman. So if you have, if you're able to do so, please dive into those. They are incredibly, incredibly helpful books. So Mark chapter 1 says this, then Jesus' mother, or Mark chapter 3, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 3, 31, then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. The crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him. 
He said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and my sister and my mother. I mean, this is one of those incredibly interesting stories in the life and times of Jesus. And I'm, and I'm certain that many of us have, if, you, if you're familiar with the text at all, you've read this story before. It's not one that's like brand new. But let's be honest, like when we read it, it's still quite striking today that Jesus' mother was outside and his response is, who is my mother? Now, many of you, you know my mom, incredible woman, very faithful follower of Jesus, someone we, you know, I love her at least, I'm sure many of you love her as well. But if you know her, you know that if she's outside, and I say, who is my mother, <laughs> let me just tell you, I, like I said, she's a follower of Jesus, amen, but it will not go well with me. And I think it's simply because family is so important to us. doesn't matter what cultural background you come from, what century you're in, I think family matters. And what's interesting is that that's that's the exact point Jesus is trying to make when he says, man, the family that I have are the people who do the will of the Father who is in heaven, not necessarily my mother and my brothers who are outside the door. And this this idea that Jesus begins here is nonstop throughout the New Testament literature. We see author after author picking up where Jesus left and continuing the language, so much so that if you go do a study of the word that is most used in like, uh, um, trying to help us understand our relationship to one another, it's this word adalfoi. It appears 342 times in the New Testament. And the word means brothers and sisters. I thought it was quite ironic that this morning, as we were singing Abulegila Masango, part of the song says, Oza puti ye. Oza, Sisi, yeah, I'm taking it slow because last time I tried a different language up here, it was not great. (laughs) But there is, even in our worship, there is this idea that we are brothers and sisters and we are drawn in to being with one another. And so, so apparently, when we talk about what it means to belong to Jesus, when we talk about what it means in our fellowship of churches to be a disciple, to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus, it means to belong in his And this family idea is even built into the primary uh, uh, metaphor that is used to describe what Jesus is trying to do in each and every one of our lives. Have a look with me here in a couple of passages. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 says this, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Galatians chapter 4 says this, But when the the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Romans chapter 8. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. See, over and over and over again, when the New Testament authors want to help us, you and I, to understand what it means to become a Christian, they employ this word picture of adoption. Now think about that for a moment. That, you know, if, 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 
if you ask yourself, what is adoption? Adoption, by its very nature, is relational, isn't it? That relational in terms of the parents to the child, but also in terms of the adopted child to their siblings. Right? I, can, I can think of no situation where a child becomes the son or the daughter of someone, but doesn't also become the sibling to the kids that are in that family. It just wouldn't make sense, because that is how family works. So if one day, a son or a daughter were to come to the father or the mother and say, hey, you know, parent, I, you guys are cool, man. Like, school fees are paid, roof over my head. I even wear, like, you know, Air Jordans or Dunks. Like, you guys are taking care of me. But yes, that sibling of mine, ah, I'm not so sure. So what I want to propose is that I remain your child, but stop being their brother or sister. Now, I want to just say that this happens even when it's not adoption. My brother, he did this to me as well. He said, Mom, can we not take him back? You know, like, can we not get rid of him? But it's just not how it works. It's a package deal. Mom, dad, parents, they come together with the kids, and we are all connected. Right? And it's the same thing with our relationship with God. That when Jesus went onto the cross to die for every single one of us, and he rose again from the grave, and he created this pathway to life eternal, this life that will last forever, this life that is truly life, what happened there is that you and I, we were adopted to sonship. He redeemed us. He purchased us out of our sin. He paid for our sin on our behalf, and he made us his son or his daughter. And it's final for good. The stamp is sealed. The records are there. There is no takebacks. We are his family. It's an incredible thing. And, you know, I wanted to just pause here to be able to say maybe this isn't or hasn't been your experience. Perhaps you're visiting. This is the first time you're with us as a fellowship, or you've been coming around a little bit. You've even heard us mention things like study the Bible and get, dive into the Scriptures more, and you haven't really kind of taken hold of that opportunity. I want to say to you, this is a massive part of the good news. The good news of Jesus is not just that you are plucked out of your situation, that you are redeemed from sin. No, you're actually drawn into a family, a diverse, very cool, sometimes challenging family that we get to be a part of this. And so if you're sitting there and you're thinking, what is he talking about? Ask the person who invited you. Tap them on the shoulder, say, hey, you know, he mentioned Bible studies. That's all you have to say. I can tell you, they'll jump on it. Because we're a church who loves to share the scriptures with one another. We love to be able to crack them open and see this life that is available to us, this transformation that Jesus has for us. Amen? So we're also adopted into a family. A family that's made up, like I said, of very interesting people that all have their own backgrounds. We have all fallen short. We are all trying our best. And this is the relational lens that I think Jesus is trying to draw to us. And so what's so interesting in this Mark chapter 3 piece is as Jesus is introducing this idea, he is not thinking of a family the way that a modern South African would think of a family. Now, if you're wondering, how do I know that? I know that because modern South Africans and their families didn't exist when Jesus said this. See, me, my Bible study is deep, right? I, I picked that up reading it once, that it wasn't set in our setting. It was set in a particular cultural setting, right? And what Jesus actually means when he says this is that we need to relate to one another as an ancient Mediterranean family would have. 
because that was the time that he lived in. That's the type of people that Jesus was talking to in the passage. Right? And any of us who have studied anthropology, we would know this, that when Jesus was saying this to them, he was talking about this idea of a strong group society, sometimes also known as a communal society or even a collectivist society. And the gist of it is this, that when an ancient Mediterranean person thought about themselves, they thought of themselves primarily as being part of a larger group. This is how biblical scholar Bruce Molina describes a strong group society. Have a look on the screen. This, this is deep. He says, in a strong group society, the person perceives himself or herself to be a member of a group and responsible to the group for his or her actions, destiny, career, development, and life in general. He does not stop there. He says, the individual person is embedded in the group and is free to do what he or she feels is right and necessary, only if in accord with group norms and only if the action is in the group's best interest. The group has the priority over the individual member. Oh, there's a lot of people on this side of the room very uncomfortable. I heard a couple of ums and ahs. But this is like, what? For us, we live in the modern day. Man, strong group society thinking, that's not necessarily where we want to be. Rather, for many of us, this can sound wrong, can sound weird, it can sound like cultish, it can sound too much can sound oppressive. And that's because really, for us in South Africa, we do have some remnants of strong group society, and I'll talk about that in a little bit. But mostly, we have moved away from strong group thinking. And we have become what's considered a weak group or an individualist society. We see ourselves primarily as individuals and then secondarily or even occasionally as part of a bigger group. In our culture, even the healthiest of South African families probably wouldn't function like the quote I just read. So, you might wonder, what are some examples of this strong group idea that are present today? Well, this is funny because it's a play on the... Anyway, uh, I missed that in my notes. So, <laughs> but it's because our sermon is called, our sermon title is called, It's All About We... This person is saying, actually, it's me, you know, the individualist. Anyway, uh, I should have, there was a joke in here somewhere. Um, <laughs> oh, at least, uh, you know, anyway, so what I'm saying, though, is this idea is actually being true and popular for most societies except the modern West. And unfortunately, and I, and I bemoan this, I'll be honest, as South Africans, we are leaning more and more and more West as the days go by. So, for example, in the Japanese culture, the word for people or for person roughly translated is, be, is in between others. So even down to how they use their language, the Japanese believe that to be a human being is to exist between or among other people. Isn't that pretty cool? In Zulu, we have a, we have a saying here in South Africa called umtu ngumtu ngabantu, which directly translated is a person is a person because of people. In other words, I cannot find my identity, my humanity, who it is that I am, I cannot find that without you. I mean, this is powerful stuff. And yet, here's the rub for all of us. We are a diverse community 
from an array of backgrounds, socioeconomic setups, families, cultures, and even ages. What this means is that we are all going to feel and think very differently about the idea of community. So for some of us, we don't like, and I would dare say for most of us, we don't like the idea of strong group thinking. It's a mentality that actually it sounds undesirable to us. It may even sound oppressive. And it feels like, man, is there not a way that I can grow up and out of that? And then for others of us in the room, we remember a time, it was in our lifetime, back home, as we would call it, where we lived like this, that you didn't eat certain pieces of meat or you didn't eat until every one of your siblings was there, and there was a lot of them. You remember those days? And so for some of us, our souls, we're yearning, we're saying, man, bring Ubuntu back. We want to get back to that time where we were just thinking about the group and not just ourselves. And so there's a tension for a group like us, isn't there? But what I think is probably worth noting is that for anybody who objects to strong group thinking and desires individualist thinking over it, thinking it's better, I do think there are some downfalls. For instance, I mentioned this before, but Prime Minister Theresa May made headlines a while back for appointing a loneliness minister. That the idea of loneliness arises in a society because people are left to make massive life decisions on their own. They're left to figure out life and the way that it should work all on their own. And so what's amazing is that the former uh, Surgeon General of the U.S. Uh, was quoted as saying that the most widespread pathology, the most widespread illness he saw, wasn't heart disease, it wasn't diabetes, but rather it was loneliness. Think about that. Now I know, okay, loneliness is a massively complex issue, and there's a lot of contributing factors in there, and I don't think it's any coincidence, though, that the West gets more and more isolated and more and more individualistic, and the more it does so, the more we see loneliness creep into society. You know, I think another effect of our individualist take on life can be anxiety. That for some of us, the biggest decisions we are making as human beings, we make them alone, and so what then happens is we also have to face the brunt of them alone. And so when it comes to choosing perhaps who is going to be my spouse, what job am I going to do, where am I going to live, we choose that based on ourselves before we consider bringing in other people into the conversation. And yet, in a strong group society, that is all done together. So the anxiety of the potential losses and I guess the excitement of the potential gains is felt and distributed amongst us, not for me alone. And again, anxiety is also massively broad. There's a lot of contributing factors. I'm not saying that this is it. But what I am saying is that, man, again, in individualistic cultures, if you go and look at the West, the numbers say it's getting worse and worse and worse. And I think it is because people have abandoned the original design of relationships. People have moved away from saying, let us all think together, take on consequences together, and rather we leave people away. So while we may prefer an individualist thinking system, it's not necessarily perfect. But I'm also not here saying we must adopt a strong group thinking. What I am saying 
is this, is that when Jesus and the New Testament authors talk about being a family, they are referring to a strong group. They are saying that we should have the level of commitment and care and priority towards the church family that an ancient Mediterranean had towards biological family. And that's where it starts to get very uncomfortable. For us especially, because what, what that really means, I'm going to try and demonstrate it here with that quote, is, is rather challenging. Ha- have a look at this quote. I'm going to swap out the word for person or for group to church. Look at this. It says, in a strong church, the person perceives himself or herself to be a member of a church and responsible to the church for his or her actions, destiny, career, development, and life in general. The individual person is embedded in the church and is free to do what he or she feels is right and necessary only if in accord with church norms and only if the action is in the church's best interest. The church has the priority over the individual member. Now, fortunately, we're not the type of church where people walk out, but I think there I might have lost you. I mean, how uncomfortable. When I read this for myself, I thought, what? And I'm in the ministry. And I thought, no, 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 no. I still want to do what I want to do. And then, you know, because I'm in the ministry like 75% of the time, you know, I'll, I'll be with the people. No, this says, whatever I do, I consider first, is it best for this? Not for this. That's hard. That can almost sound cultish. It can sound weird. And if if I made you uncomfortable with this at all, I want you to know it makes me just as uncomfortable. And I have to stand up here in front of all of you and say it. Man, there's plenty of days. I had a a time with a brother this week. I said, man, there's plenty of days where I wish being a Christian, bro, it was just me and God. I made the decision to have a relationship with him. I crack open the scriptures. I pray. And then I go about my day. And all God asks of me is, hey, would you be nice to other human beings as you go along? I can do that. Be nice. Absolutely. Like I said last week, most of us don't wake up wanting to kill people. That's just not who we are. And yet what it would seem the text is calling us to church, what it would seem it means to be a follower of Jesus is we have to wrestle with the scriptures and what they're actually saying and not what we wish that they said. And I can tell you, this brother said to me, it was quite funny, he said, he said look, I'm going to have to go back home and think about this, and then I'll come back and tell you what I really think, because right now, this is a lot to take in. <laughs> I thought, amen, bro, because he was wrestling with this. We have to wrestle. It's not a cult. It's not some crazy thing. It's the family that Jesus paid his life for. It's what it is that when he thinks about the new world to come, he thinks about this. It's not, a, it's not a way of orienting anybody around me or even the Cape Town Church of Christ as an organization. It is all about us, myself included, orienting ourselves around Jesus and his kingdom. It's about ordering, ordering ourselves around that which is already a family. You see, a cult would mean that this is all about me, that it's my idea and it's not Jesus' idea. It would mean that I want you to do what makes me happy. And that's not even the case because this doesn't necessarily make me happy either. What this is, is Jesus' calling over thousands of years through the biblical text saying, hey, who are my mother and my brothers and my sisters? They are the people who do the will of my Father. 
I mean, it's like, okay, this is hard. So how do we do this? Now, I must say this, specifically for followers of Jesus, that we are called to treat one another this way, right? In this ancient family. That when Jesus calls the church to function as a family, he's not saying we should care about one another a little more than we currently do. What he is saying, that we should radically reorient our entire lives around this. And I think this is important for us to note because this flies in contrast to the current modern day, even within Christian circles. That some of even some of the best books, best-selling books, is about your faith and then its potential impact on the community, not the community and its impact on you. And so we have to fight back. And so that's what we've been doing. I said to someone, as, as I sent out these notes, I said, man, one of the things I've done is I've saved this one for later in the series so you at least like me knowing the first two were quite nice because this is hard. And he was like, yeah, no, bro, this one, this, because he reads my notes, he said, bro, this one's hard. This is a hard teaching. So let's go back to where we come from. Where did we start? We started with have a list of names. If you're visiting today, grab a list of names. Grab, hey, man, five people today that you meet, what have you. Man, have a list of names. These are people that you're going to say, hey, I want to commit to getting to know you and being known by you. I think this is applicable to all of us. doesn't matter our age in the, in the room. Then, take off a covering. This is hearkening back to what um, uh, happened with Adam and Eve as they uh, rebelled against, Christ, uh, against God and they fell into sin and, and then they were covering themselves up. And now because of sin and shame, we cover ourselves up as well, don't we? So the idea was have a list of names and then with those list of names, take off a covering. Say, man, this is actually what's going on. See, nice. It's like, ah, I can kind of do that. That's all good. Then we said make a vow of stability. Be committed. You know, it's easy to kind of come in and go out. It's kind of be, man, I'm, I'm here, but I'm not fully here. I said, man, make a vow to be committed. Don't run when things get messy. And then last week we looked at this idea that we need to choose simplicity, presence, and what is better. And again, this is nice. It's like, yeah, I want to choose what's, I want to be simple. I don't want to have a complicated life. This morning I just, I thought, I had more points. I thought, man, I'm only going to add one. And it's here in Philippians chapter 2. Have a look there with me. It says this. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. If we are going to function like a family church, this right here is where it has to start. We have to start in our own hearts, in our own mind, having the posture of Jesus. That man, it's not a posture that Sorry, the posture that doesn't put our own preferences, our own schedules, our own mood and conveniences ahead of the community, but rather the needs of the community ahead of ourselves. The type of posture that, that doesn't come into community demanding and insisting, hey, how can you meet my needs? What is it that you can do for me? But instead, a loving and caring community, sorry, loving and caring for the community first and then ourselves. And I must say this, it's loving and caring for the community we have been given first. 
Because it's no good us saying, yeah, I'll be humble if the community were like this. Yes, yes, I'll humble myself if this was the group that I was a part of. But rather it's saying, man, how can I come into a community and figure out how can I serve the people who are here? How can I walk into family group every time we gather together and say, hey, what can I offer people? That how can I encourage someone? How can I point out something good in them? How can I point out the good news of Jesus as it unfolds in our lives? That's the posture that we need to have if we're going to really build a community where we can say we choose we, we rather, over me. The posture of Jesus. And that posture took Jesus all the way to the cross. And so what Paul says is that when we get that posture, we get it by looking to Jesus. This is Jesus who was God. I mean, the steps that he takes to lower himself in that passage. He was God at the very right hand. He, he made all the demands. He called the shots. He was the guy. And yet somehow he decides, man, I'm going to empty myself out. And I'm going to pour myself out into this world. And that posture has taken him to the cross. And it's because of that cross that we can even gather today. It's because of his sacrifice. You know, in our house, we have a saying going that says, man, humility always wins. It doesn't matter what the story is, even when it looks like it lost, right? I mean, Jesus dead on a cross. It's like the guys are thinking, ha-ha, we got him. And then, boom, three days later, baby. Now, I don't know. Some, for some reason, I think Jesus walked out of the tomb with swag. I don't know why. But I just can't imagine that he was, like, stiff and, like, yeah, okay, I'm resurrected. No, I can imagine, like, it's power, baby. Let's go. Like, that's what happens. When we decide we're going to choose to be humble, when we choose to say, I'm going to ask questions and not have answers, when we choose to say, I'm going to serve and not be served, when we choose to say, it's all about we, not about me, and when we do that, church, when we gather that posture, we will become the community that God wants us to be. We'll become the community that our city needs us to be. We'll become the type of people bearing God's image into this world and transforming it one little act of kindness, one little act of humility at a time, because humility always wins. Amen.